0: live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGunier on TalkShoe. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This is the 29th and final segment of our series on the Gospel of Luke, Yahweh willing, which we began on May 18th, 2012. While I have Endeavored to cover this gospel as comprehensively as possible. And at the same time, without repeating too much of the material which I had discussed while presenting Matthew and Mark back in 2011, I also feel as though I've been covering Luke for a very long time. I feel like I've made a career out of it, in fact. I pray that my listeners have found it to be worthwhile. I really believe that Luke is, well, well all the Gospels are, are, are equally important, but Luke is, is of the greatest import to the two seed line message among the four Gospels. I know that all the the, the two seed line teachers love John eight forty four, but Luke chapter 10 and Luke chapter 11 both reveal that the um, that the mystery of iniquity is genetic and that it can be traced back to a race-mixing event in the Garden of Eden. That's the way I see it. Luke is also the most important gospel to Christian identity doctrines because while there are some clues in Matthew and Mark and John, none of them are like Luke and stressing the fact that the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament prophecies, not from the point of view of the Messiah and, and, and the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies, but from the point of view of the prophecies which which promised the revelation of the children of Israel hidden away by Yahweh in the earth. The children of Israel dispersed by Yahweh our God between 721 and 585 BC, Luke does more than any of the other Gospels to include those testimonies which tell us that the Gospels are intended for those people specifically. And, and of course, that is the fulfillment of, of the prophecy, and, and there's just as much material in that regard in, in Paul's letters and, in a revelation, in an indirect sort of way, but nowhere is there as much material in the four Gospels in that regard as there are in Luke. Luke is definitely the Christian identity gospel as far as I am concerned and, and that 's important I, I mean we need luke 's gospel, of course, that there 's little comments in Matthew and John, but not as much as there are in Luke chapters one and two alone and, and it 's um the, the utmost importance that we um, don't cave into the Jews and, and their attempts to divide us with, with their, um, their cunning chicanery in, in the espousal and, and propagation of Paul bashing, because if we dismiss the Apostle Paul, we also have to dismiss Luke, and we dismiss much biblical truth, and we're treading on very dangerous ground when we wander into those, into those errors, I would, um, even though parts of it seem to me very sophomoric and very mundane, I would, I would um, recommend that everybody listen to the Paul Bashers against the Paul Bashers series that we've been doing on Saturday nights. But well, where in audio podcasts, I'm able to expound, uh, I think, even a lot more on, on the importance of Paul of Tarsus and, and the folly of the arguments presented by his attackers. It, even more than I was able to do in print when, when I wrote the, um, the presentation for Clifton Emmeheiser against the Paul Bashers back in 2004 and early 2005. All of these things go hand-in-hand. So I pray that my listeners have found this long exposition on the Gospel of Luke to be worthwhile. However, we are really only halfway through Luke's New Testament testimony. And soon we will begin a presentation of the Book of Acts. I'm not sure how soon. It it might be one week. It might be a few weeks. It it won't be next week. Uh, I'm going to do something different next week. It it has been my custom to squeeze a presentation on one of the minor prophets in between these presentations that I've done since last year on the Revelation and, and the Gospels. So I may do a minor prophet. and and possibly even one or two other short projects before beginning the Book of Acts on this Friday night program. Uh, I'm undecided as of yet. I I have to look through the minor profits and see where I could lend the most value from the knowledge that I I believe that I've accumulated these past um, several years. All told, perhaps sometime in the near future, these programs will make for a somewhat comprehensive commentary on the entire New Testament, both in audio and print, since all of the notes for all of these programs have been posted, along with the podcasts at christoginia.org, and they're shared openly and freely the way it should be. I pray that I may be able to continue through to the completion of such an endeavor, which will probably take a couple of more years, right? The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. While presenting these Gospel accounts, it has often been said that the perspectives of all four Gospel writers are needed in order to be able to piece together a more complete picture of the events surrounding the life, ministry, and passion of Christ. This is especially true when trying to determine the chronology of the last week of his pre-resurrection life and the chronology of, of his death and resurrection. The popular perception of the chronology of the death and resurrection of Christ comes from a calendar which was evidently made to suit the Catholic Church. However, it does not agree with the gospel. From John nineteen thirty-one we see of the Sabbath, which was also the Passover, that that Sabbath day was a high day, as the King James has it. So we learn that Christ was placed into a tomb at the end of a preparation day for a high Sabbath, and not necessarily for the day of the regular seventh-day Sabbath. And that he was in that tomb on a Sabbath day, and that he was found to have been arisen by dawn of the first day of the week, which is the day immediately following a Sabbath day, from three to four Gospels, from Matthew 27, verse 55, and and verse 61, and from Mark, chapter 15, verse 47, and from Luke, chapter 24, verse 1. We see that the women who were with Christ had observed his death and burial right up to where he was placed into the tomb. From all four gospels, from Matthew 28:1, from Mark 16:2, from Luke 23:55, and from John chapter 20 verse 1, we find that the first thing Mary Magdalene and some of the other women did on a day immediately after a Sabbath, even before the sun had risen completely, was to go to the tomb of Christ and find that he had already arisen. If that day were the Passover Sabbath, it seems to me that they would hardly have had time to go shopping. However, in the opening verses of Mark chapter 16, we read the following, and I quote, from the Christogenia New Testament, And upon the passing of the Sabbath, Maria, the Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, and Maria, the mother of Jacob, and Salome, purchased herbs in order that, having come, they may anoint him. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb upon the rising of the sun. This verse is a very telling verse. The passing of the Sabbath must mean to indicate the passing of the of the high day of John nineteen thirty one, which was the Passover itself. The Passover was a Sabbath day, a day of no work or commerce. But it was not the regular Sabbath day of the seven-day Sabbath cycle. So the women did not purchase herbs until the Sabbath had passed and neither could the woman have purchased and prepared the herbs before getting to the tomb before dawn on the first day of the week, unless there was an intervening day that the women could use for such a task, which was between the high day Passover Sabbath and the Sabbath day prior to, immediately prior to, the first day of the week, upon which the women, very early in the morning, had gone to the tomb. For all of the gospel accounts to be correct, and they all must be correct unless we could find a serious reason to suspect the text itself, there must have been, and, and we don't in this instance, there must have been a Passover Sabbath and then another day And then a regular seventh-day Sabbath before this morning where the woman appeared at the tomb to find that Christ had already been arisen. Since Christ was slain on a preparation day for Passover, the Greeks and Hebrews, not having names for the days of the week, let us arbitrarily, and for the purposes of this example, let us call that day Wednesday so that we may have a good point of reference. Christ was placed into the tomb near the very end of this Wednesday. Then we may assume that the Passover of the Judeans that year was on a Thursday, and its passing would complete his first night and day in the tomb. Then. We need a regular business day upon which the women, as described in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, could purchase sweet spices that they might come and anoint him, which is the way the King James Version has it. Mark 16:1 clearly tells us that the women did not purchase the spices until after the passing of the Sabbath, which must have been the Passover day. the passing of this day upon which the purchase was made and which we will call a Friday for our purposes here, would complete the second night and day that Christ was in the tomb. Then, making their preparations, the women must have rested on the following day which was the regular seventh-day Sabbath. And this day would have completed the third night and day that Christ was in the tomb, which we will call a Saturday. This is all in perfect accordance with the testimony of Christ, as he had said that, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, thusly shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. As it is recorded in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, when the women came to the tomb on what we may call a Sunday morning, early before dawn. They found that Christ had already risen and he must have arisen the evening before. Otherwise, and especially if we want to believe the Roman Catholics, he did not spend three days and nights in the tomb. One cannot squeeze three days and nights into the Roman church calendar no matter how many papal decrees one emits. All of this is explained in detail with all of the relevant scriptures, and an article written years ago by a man named Bowen and reproduced on Clifton Amahazer's website, which is entitled, Three Days and Three Nights. With this, we will commence with Luke 24, verse 1. And on the first day of the week, early at dawn, they came to the tomb bearing the herbs which they prepared. The phrase describing the first day of the week is literally the first of the Sabbaths. The Greek phrase, which has the word for Sabbath in the plural, was clearly, in many contexts in Scripture, used to denote the weekly cycle, and there is no other term which I have seen as of yet which describe the concept of a week in the Greek language, in the ancient Greek language. Now, the codices, Alexandrinus, the Washingtonensis, both of the 5th century, and the majority text upon which the King James Version is based, those codices have, and they came to the tomb and certain others with them. Those words are also found in Luke here in the Codex Bezae, and in the 6th century, Codex 070 which further have appended to the end of the verse these words, and they reckoned among themselves, who now may roll away the stone? And we see those words in in the other Gospels, but they're not in the best manuscripts in Luke. They're not in the oldest manuscripts. The text of the Christogenian New Testament here follows the 3rd century papyrus, P75, and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimus, Ceres. Luke does not name the women at the tomb on this morning until we get to verse 11, where he names Maria the Magdalene and Johanna, or Joanna, and Maria the mother of Jacob, or James. And then he mentions the rest of the women with them. Matthew chapter 28 mentions only Maria Magdalene, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary as having been at the tomb at this time. The women at the tomb that morning, which are named in Mark, chapter 16, are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who's not mentioned by Luke, right? He just mentions Joanna and the other women with them, along with the two Marys. John in chapter 20 only mentions Mary Magdalene. The mention of only one or two women, and this is my point here, the mention of only one or two women in some accounts does not preclude the presence of yet other women, even beyond those mentioned by the other accounts. In other words, John isn't lying when he just mentions that Mary Magdalene was at the tomb. She certainly was. John just omits the fact that there were other women with her because ostensibly, to John, it wasn't really an integral, an integral part of the story. He didn't have need to go into more detail. He gave us the part of the story that he felt we needed to know in order to understand the gospel, and so on and so forth through all the gospels. So when one person, when one gospel writer mentions that one person did something, And another Gospel writer mentions that two people did that thing. Well, neither of them are lying. One of them just didn't feel important, didn't feel it was important to mention all the other people. We see that in the Old Testament, too. And and that's the method with which the Bible's written. It it always, the, the, the person who's doing the writing always focuses on the central characters. We see that we're told that um, Haran took Abraham his son and Lot, and and they went off to the land of Canaan, and, and and it mentions his household and and the souls that they had gotten in 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 Haran. I'm sorry, Terah took Abraham and his his son and Lot, and and, and the souls that they took from Haran, the town they were in, and they went to the land of Canaan. And, and then we see that Abraham has three hundred men. That, that he goes to war against in, in the Battle of the Kings, and he, and he has 300 men on his side that are his servants. Well, well, we have to imagine that those 300 men were with Abraham among the souls that the, that they had gotten from Haran, which were actually from Abraham's ancestral land and, and from his wider kindred, right? But, that detail isn't given every time Abraham's mentioned in, in Genesis chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. So, so we have to assume that the writer of Genesis chapter 12 didn't lie. He just didn't feel it necessary to mention exactly how many people which Abraham when they moved to the land of Canaan. Now, that's another example. I I mean, there's a lot of biblical examples like that. We need the whole Bible. We need the whole context of the book to understand the the story, right? And and that's the point. But none of the witnesses are lying just because they're omitting or, or including certain details that other witnesses didn't include or omit. We always have to bear that in mind because we have to stand against the scoffers and, 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 and the, the, um, all the fiery darts of the enemy, right? The, the, the prosecutors, the prosecutors of God, the accusers of our brethren who love to undermine the faith of weaker Christians who aren't so studied with these little idiosyncrasies in the scripture. We have to be able to answer them. So there's, just, there's the answer in that regard verse 2 and they found the stone having been rolled away from the tomb then entering in they found not the body of Prince Joshua well the gospel accounts once again certainly do not conflict here only Matthew tells us how the stone had been rolled away where he relates, and I'll read Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, and it being laid on the Sabbath, while approaching dawn on the first day of the week, Miriam the Magdalene and the other Maria had come to watch the burial place. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for a messenger of Yahweh descended out of heaven, having come forth, and having come forth, rolled the, rolled the stone away and sat upon it. Matthew's record means to explain how the women had found the tomb opened and not that the stone was moved after the women had arrived. It was clearly found opened by them upon their arrival. Verse 4. And it came to pass, while they were puzzled, And it came to pass, wonderful, Luke 24, 4, and it came to pass, while they were puzzled concerning this, then behold, two men in shining garments stood over them, and when they becoming terrified and bowing their faces to the ground, they said to them, the angel said to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has arisen. Luke mentions two messengers, or angels, who were apparently inside the tomb. Matthew only recounts one angel outside of the tomb, sitting on the stone. Mark only mentions one angel, but places him inside of the tomb. These accounts are all secondhand from what the writers perceived as it was related to them, to each of them, or to others in Luke's case, by at least one of the women who were actually present. Therefore, it cannot be asserted with confidence that the accounts are in conflict with one another. Again, it can only be asserted that that this perspective of the testimony was different as it was provided in one way or another to each of the other Gospel writers. Some witnesses felt it was important to mention both angels. Some witnesses didn't. John does not mention any angels in his first encounter at the tomb. He didn't need to. John's account here consists of only two lines. Now on the first day of the week, this is from John chapter 20, Maria the Magdalene comes early to the tomb, it's still being dark, and sees the stone having been lifted from the tomb. Therefore she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to that other student whom Joshua loved and says to them, they have taken the prince out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. The rest of John's account at the tomb concerns what happened when Mary Magdalene later returned to it after Peter and John heard the report from her and the other women that had run to investigate the tomb for themselves. Peter and John may not have even necessarily heard the same report. None of the other gospel writers even discussed that aspect of the events, of that morning as John did. Mary Magdalene's encounter with Christ later, after Peter and John come to investigate the tomb. Now, I've heard it argued very deviously that John's account of the women at the tomb and, and the other gospel writers, using the encounter of Mary Magdalene with Christ, that are in conflict with one another. Not if you go read John's account, Because Mary Magdalene's encounter with Joshua Christ in the garden, where he told her not to touch her and all that, well, well, that doesn't happen until her second time at the tomb. And the people that try to use that in order to create a conflict in the mind of, 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 of of the susceptible, I should say, where there is really no conflict at all, they ignore those facts, right? Continuing verse 6 in the words of the angel, Remember that he had spoken to you yet being in Galilee, saying, It is necessary for the Son of Man to be handed over into the hands of sinful men, and to be crucified, and to be resurrected in the third day. And they remembered his words. We're going to run down those words briefly. From, the, from all the three Gospels, John doesn't mention those words at all in his gospel. I guess he felt he didn't need to. We have to bear in mind that John's gospel was actually written 60 years after the crucifixion. According to all the early Christian accounts of the earliest Christian writers, 60 years after the crucifixion. Now Luke and, and, and Mark and Matthew, especially Matthew, all wrote their gospels already. Paul had to be very familiar with the gospel recorded by Luke. That had to be written before Paul was beheaded by Nero in the early parts of the sixth decade, approximately 30 years after the crucifixion. Mark was already written by then, being written after the death of Peter, apparently. Matthew was certainly the first gospel recorded, according to the earliest witnesses that I've read. And his Gospel had to be written before then. John's Gospel was written last, and it's very different from the other three Gospels. And, and Bertrand Compare thought, and I must agree, that John wrote his Gospel purposely to fill in many of the gaps concerning events that were not included in the other Gospel accounts. John, being sort of the favorite of Christ, the disciple whom Christ loved, he was probably closest to him and and an eyewitness to, to many things, and I'm sure that he wanted to make sure they were recorded, not being found in the other gospels. That that's uh, I mean that can be that that's apparent from the diverse records and the nature of John's gospel. Okay, Matthew sixteen twenty one. And we'll see that these things, are in, that, that were talked about here by the angel, he, he, the angel had to remind the apostles of these things and the women of these things. Matthew 16, 21, from that time forth began Jesus, I'm quoting from the King James, to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. From that time forth, he began to teach these things. He told these things to the apostles again and again. We see in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Mark 9.31 records the same thing. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of man, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And Mark 10, 33 and 34, he tells them basically the same thing. And we see it again in Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, and in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. And very often we see the testimony that the apostles, even though Christ told them those things explicitly, they still didn't understand. They still didn't understand the impact of the words he was telling them. And when it came to pass, they still were taken by surprise. They still didn't expect it. And we'll see later on in this account of Luke that God opens our eyes to things when he chooses to. And very often we can't see things, even though we're told them explicitly, or they're staring us right in the face. So we can never think too highly of ourselves. Verse 9. And returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest and they were Maria the Magdalene and jo- Joanna or Johanna, and the Maria the mother of Jacob or James. The words the mother are inferred, but the relationship is indeed known from other gospel passages. And the rest of the women, and in that phrase, the words of the women are inferred from the feminine gender of the, ra- of the noun. The same noun in the masculine in verse 9 is simply the rest. And the rest of the women with them who spoke these things to the ambassadors. And these words appeared before them as nonsense and they did not believe them. So the apostles didn't believe the account of the women at first. Even though on many occasions they were told by Christ that this would happen they still found it difficult to believe. They thought the women were teaching nonsense. But Peter, arising, ran to the tomb, and peering in, seized the linen clothes, the linen linen cloths only, and departed, wondering to himself what had happened. That word parakopto, that's the Greek word, is to peer into here. Liddell and Scott explained that the word means to stoop sideways, to stoop for the purpose of looking at, to peep in, which seems to draw a picture for us of the situation of the door of the tomb. Peter had to bend over and look into it. The perspectives among the four gospel writers differ greatly at this point. Matthew relates that the arisen Christ briefly met with the women as they departed from the tomb and that he instructed the women to report the matter to the apostles and to tell them to gather in Galilee. Mark's gospel ends at the point where the women depart from the tomb. As the angel tells them, to report what they had seen to Peter and the others and also tells them to have the apostles go to meet Christ in Galilee. Here in Luke's Gospel, we see that Peter ran to the tomb to see it empty for himself and then the entire focus shifts to the traveling of certain men to the village of Emmaus, which had evidently been underway as the events at the tomb were unfolding, because Christ is said to have encountered these men, causing them to subsequently return to Jerusalem and gather themselves to the other apostles. We are never given the identity of one of the two men, and we can exclude the eleven for reasons that we'll discuss later. The other Luke names as Cleopas, and Cleopas was not one of the twelve. In John's Gospel, we find that both Peter and John himself had run to the tomb, even though Luke doesn't tell us about John running to the tomb. Right, He only tells us about Peter. John says that after having heard the report from the women, and I quote from John 20, verse 3, Therefore, Peter and that other student, John never mentions himself in his gospel, went out and went to the tomb. Then the two ran together, and that other student ran ahead faster than Peter and came first to the tomb. And peering in, he sees the linens lying. However, he did not enter. Then comes also Simon Peter following him, and he entered into the tomb, and he sees the linens lying, and the cloth which was upon his head, meaning the head of Christ, not lying with the linens, but apart, having been rolled up in another place. So then the other student also entered, who first came to the tomb, and he saw and believed, for not yet had they known the scripture that it is necessary for him to be resurrected from among the dead. Therefore, the students departed back to them. At this point in John's Gospel, we also learn, this is where we also learn that Mary had again returned to the tomb and then had her personal personal encounter with Christ, which John describes at length. Luke 24, verse 13. And behold, two of them on that day were traveling to a village which was named Emmaus, 60 stadia distant from Jerusalem. According to Liddell and Scott, a stadion is about one-eighth of a Roman mile, or 606 and three-quarters English feet. And so there are nearly 8.7 stadia to an English mile. The Codex Sinaiticus and the 6th century Codex labeled 079 have 160 stadia, which would be a distance of about 20 miles. Aeneus is frequently mentioned by Josephus, and he says that the name may mean warm bath. In spite of the fact that Josephus calls Emmaus, a palace, or a city, where here it is called a kome, which is a town or a village, it must be the same place. In the reign of Herod Archelaus, that ended a short time later, that, that ended in 9 AD, which would have been early in the life of Christ, a short time after Christ was born, The Roman general and governor of Syria named Quintilius Varus had burned Emmaus. He burned the city. And the city may well have been reduced to a village at that time. We learn that from Josephus' Antiquities, Chapter 17. The precise location of Emmaus is apparently unknown. Some commentators and mapmakers have placed Emmaus in the mountain country northwest of Jerusalem. However, Josephus places it Nearer to the plains. The passage of Antiquities chapter 12, line 307, shows that Emmaus was not in the mountains. Where, preceding a battle, a general not finding the opposing army at Emmaus, as he expected, imagines them to have instead fled into the mountains. The city seems to be west of Jerusalem, since it is often mentioned along with Joppa, Lydda, and Jamnia, all of which are on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea or in the plains west of Jerusalem. And we see that in Josephus' Wars of the Judeans in Book 2, line 567, Book 3, line 55, and Book 4, line 444. Josephus also mentions another village named Emmaus, a little distant from the city of Tiberias, which Herod the Tetrarch had built on the shores of Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. However, that would be about 60 miles from Jerusalem, a distance of over 500 stadia. The Emmaus near to Jerusalem, according to Josephus's Wars of the Judeans in Book 7, line 217, is 60 furlongs, or in another translation, about 8 miles from Jerusalem. So we see that that is identifiable as this Emmaus, and it appears to be west of the city. So the apostles who are traveling to this village of Emmaus, they are not headed for Galilee, right? And that they left before having received the reports from the women. They departed from the other apostles to travel to this village. Just a point of interest. Luke 24, verse 14. And they were conversing with each other about all of those things which happened. And it came to pass upon their conversing and disputing that Yahshua himself approached, traveling with them. But their eyes being restrained, not recognizing him, Then he said to them, what are these words which you exchange with each other walking? And they were in a sad state. And one by the name of Cleopas, replying, said to him, do you alone dwell near Jerusalem and not know the things which happened in her? The phrase in her meaning in the city. The word her comes from the feminine pronoun, which was used by the writer. Do you alone dwell near Jerusalem and not know the things which happened in her in these days? Now the King James in this verse, in verse 18, has taken a verb, paroikeo, and has translated it as a noun, Stranger. The word is a verb, it can't be translated as a noun. That's not right. The word means to dwell beside or to live near. And here it is in the present second person singular, you dwell near. The statement reflects the fact that the apostles had expected all of those living in the area around Jerusalem to have heard about the things which transpired concerning the crucifixion of Yahshua Christ. Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things concerning Yahshua the Nazarene, who was a man, a prophet, powerful in deed and in word before Yahweh and all of the people. And how the high priests and our leaders gave him over to a judgment of death and they crucified him. But we have had hope that it is he who is going to redeem Israel. Yeah, and with all these things, this is the third day which passes from when these things happened. We'll talk about several aspects of this passage. The apostles, as we have discussed at length over the course of this presentation of Luke's Gospel, thought that the redemption of Israel meant that the kingdom would be immediately restored to Israel upon the advent of the Messiah. As we see them ask him at Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Prince, then at this time shall shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. The statement by the apostles that this is the third day which passes from when these things happened, seems to refute the assertions made here earlier that Christ was crucified on what we may call a Wednesday and resurrected before the beginning of what we may call a Sunday, which is evidently the day upon which this statement was made on the road to Emmaus. A scriptural expositor of the early 20th century named R.A. Torrey in his book, Difficulties in the Bible, also presented this view. And of this very passage, he wrote the following, and I quote, It is sometimes objected against the view here advanced that the two on the way to Emmaus, early on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, said to Jesus in speaking of the crucifixion and the events accompanying it, Besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And it is and that's this passage here at Luke twenty four twenty one, right? And it is said that if the crucifixion took place on Wednesday, Sunday would be the fourth day since these things were done. But the answer is very simple. These things were done just as Thursday was beginning at sunset on Wednesday. They were done therefore, they were therefore completed on Thursday, and the first day since Thursday would be Friday. And the second day since Thursday would be Saturday. And the third day since Thursday would be Sunday, the first day of the week. So the supposed objection in reality supports the theory. On the other hand, if the crucifixion took place on Friday, By no manner of reckoning could Sunday be made the third day since these things were done. I would have to agree with R.A. Torrey, except on one small point. I wouldn't necessarily agree that we have to discount Wednesday by the method which he used. I would only say that the Apostles... And the Greeks in general, when they counted such things and reckoned such things, counted it exclusive of the day that it happened. In other words, today would be the first day since yesterday. And tomorrow would be the second day since yesterday. And Sunday would be the third day since yesterday, right? They don't count yesterday when counting the days since yesterday. Very simple concept. Clifton Emma Heiser, had quoted this passage from R.A. Torrey as part of a longer citation in his essay, "Noon to New Madness, Part 2, where he uses Luke chapter 24, verse 21, to also illustrate that the Hebrew day began at sundown and not at midday, as some very foolish man would assert. And I have actually met people in Identity Christianity who have practiced a noon-to-noon Sabbath, actually believing that the Hebrew day started at noon because of some harebrained scheme cooked up by a guy named Heck. What the heck? Luke 24, verse 22 But then some women from among us had astonished us, having come early to the tomb and not finding his body, came saying also that they had seen a vision of messengers who said that he lives. Of course, this is the continuation of the testimony of the man on the road to Emmaus, which he is making to Christ but doesn't realize it. And some of those with us departing for the tomb also found thusly, just as the women spoke, and him, meaning Christ, they saw not. While Luke explicitly mentioned only Peter's departing for the tomb after hearing the initial report from the women, which we see in verse 12 of this chapter, here Luke tells us through the testimony from this man that there were more than just Peter who had done so. Was Luke lying in verse 12? No, he told the entire truth. He only felt for some reason, he felt like, he, should have, like he, he didn't have to include the record of the other apostles who accompanied Peter, right? Or of John running to the tomb with Peter. Here he tells us that there were more than just Peter who had done so. This in turn supports John's version of the account, and it also illustrates for us that when one aspect of an event is mentioned, that does not preclude the possibility of other unmentioned aspects having taken place, which we then sometimes see elsewhere mentioned in other accounts. In other words, if Luke tells us that Peter did something, while John tells us that it was Peter and John, who did that same thing. That does not make Luke wrong. It only indicates that the event, as described in Luke's version, was not related as completely as it was in John's version. Luke's version could not be esteemed to be wrong simply because it is not as complete as that of another. Only scoffers and those who wish to see lies where in reality there are no lies, would consider it to be so. Verse 25. And he said to them, and this is the words of Christ, right? The men men don't know they're speaking to Christ. And he said to them, O foolish and slow in heart to believe upon all which has been spoken by the prophets, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his honor? Now, the third century papyrus P75 stands alone and has the word kingdom in place of honor in that passage. Verse 27. Then beginning from Moses and from all of the prophets, he expounded for them by all of the writings the things about himself. The four Gospels are replete with notices. Of course, they were all written after this time, right? They were replete with notices concerning the events of the life and death and resurrection of Christ in relation to the fulfillment of Scripture. While the apostles had obviously just learned these things themselves, we had discussed at length while presenting the second part of Luke chapter 23 how large a challenge the apostles had in illustrating these same things from the Old Testament to the rest of their countrymen as they attempted to spread the gospel. One example was how Paul preached the gospel to the men of Baroia. And as it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, these were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica who accepted the word with all eagerness each day, examining the writings, if these things would hold thusly. Therefore, Paul said in Acts chapter 26, and I quoted this in Luke chapter 23, part 2, However, obtaining assistance from Yahweh, under this day I have stood bearing testimony to both the small and the great, saying nothing outside of the things which both the prophets and Moses said are going to happen. Whether the Christ was to suffer, whether first from a resurrection from the dead is a light going to be declared to both the people and to the nations. The people of Israel, of Judea at the time, didn't believe that their Messiah had to die in order to achieve the redemption. Today we understand that and we understand why. Of course, by people and nations, Paul was referring to both the remnant Israelite people of Judea and to those nations of ancient Israel in their dispersion. We in Identity Christianity understand why, because we understand the immutability of God's covenants. Luke 24, verse 28. And they came near to the village where they were going, and he pretended to travel further. And they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is near evening, and already the day is past. And he entered in to stay with them. The phrase rendered the day is past is literally the day is declined, and it's a reference to the sun, the state of the sun in the sky, right? The verb being clean to lean or to recline or to decline. In English, we may say that it was late in the afternoon. The codices Alexandrinus, Beze, Washingtonensis, And the majority text upon which the King James Version is based all want the word already. Luke 24, verse 30. And it came to pass, upon his reclining with them, taking the bread, he blessed it, and breaking it, he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Then, he became invisible to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Men can only see things, they can only see those things which God wants them to see. Even if those same things are staring them in the face. How many times do men say to themselves, why didn't I see that? Often we do not see things because we cannot. And by that we are constantly reminded that we should be humble. Then he became invisible to them. There is more to God's creation than we can usually perceive in our physical bodies in this world. If God cannot transcend this world then we have no hope that there is a God. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die, or you will die. That should be our attitude. I pray not. There is indeed God. And Christians must understand that that creator God can certainly transcend this world. Verse 32. And they said to each other, Were our hearts not burning within us as he spoke to us on the road? As he explained the writings to us, I would like to take a few moments to discuss the belief in the possibility of a resurrection from the dead, or in the existence of the man, of the spirit of a man after his fleshly passing, which was from the earliest times found in all white cultures. of the belief that men could be resurrected from the dead, when presenting Matthew chapter 28 here last year, last September 23rd, 2011, I discussed at great length traditions, both Hebrew and pagan, which reflect such a belief among all of the various branches of the white race from the earliest times. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, we see that the Israelite King Saul had gone to a necromancer in order to communicate with the deceased prophet. And indeed, the scripture attests that he did. In the book of Job, in chapter 19, at verses 25 to 29, we find these words, and I quote, "'For I know that my Redeemer lives.'" and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins, or my organs, be consumed within me. But you should say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishments of the sword, that ye may know that there is a judgment. In his epistles, Peter described the Spirit of Christ descending to preach unto the spirits in prison, 1 Peter 3.19. Strong's lexicon defines Sheol, the Hebrew word 7585, as Hades, or the world of the dead, including its accessories and inmates. And that is how the word is often used in scripture. It goes beyond the grave. There's a spiritual part of it, too. Joshua Christ himself mentioned Hades frequently, using the Greek word and that was the name among the Greeks which originally designated the demon lord of Tartarus. Tartarus was the underworld abode of the spirits of the dead. And later the name Hades became synonymous for the place itself. The 6th century B.C. Greek poet Hesiod called Tartarus Dim Totarus in the depth of the wide path, earth. See Agony, line 119. From the time of Homer, and probably much earlier, this was the abode of the souls of the dead. And in the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, the famous poem, Homer devotes an entire chapter to his hero, Odysseus's supposed visit to Tartarus, where he is depicted as conversing with the spirits of the deceased. Homer and Hesiod wrote at least 600 years before the birth of Christ, nearly 600 years, 650 years before Peter wrote his epistle about the spirit of Christ descending in the, into the earth to preach the gospel to the spirits in prison. In Euripides, Euripides, In his play, Alcestis, a play which was written nearly 500 years before Christ, the hero, Heracles, is said to have descended into Hades to bring the heroine Alcestis back from the dead as a reward for what she had done for her husband. She died on his behalf visits by both God and mortals into the underworld abode of the dead. The living place of rebels and evildoers is the subject of tales found in the Sumerian and Egyptian inscriptions which predate the birth of Christ by two to 3,000 years. Examples are found in the creation myths of the Egyptians, in the ancient Sumerian epic entitled Gilgamesh and the Land of the Living, and in the Sumerian myth, which is entitled Inanna's Descent to the Netherworld. Anyone wishing to investigate these inscriptions should locate a copy of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament a rather large volume edited by James D. Pritchard and published by Princeton University Press in 1969. The volume is a collection of perhaps thousands of inscriptions from the ancient world, and they are replete with evidence that all of our most ancient ancestors and forebears believed in life after death and the eventual return to a fleshly body. Things which we see manifest in our Bibles, in Germanic literature, Germanic literature which dates to a time long before Christianity came to the North. Niflheim is the underworld abode of Hell or Hela, who was esteemed to be the goddess of the dead, and the souls of the dead dwelt there. Niflheim and Hela, from where we get the English word hell, which just like Hades, that the figure of the demon that ruled over it became the name of the place, Niflheim and Hela are mentioned in the Eda, for instance, in the Völuspá, paragraph 42, or in the Lay of Vath, Vath, I'm probably going to destroy this name, the Lay of Vath Thruthnir, paragraph 43. See the Poetic Edda, a book translated, a copy and an edition of the Eddas, translated by Lee M. Hollander, University of Texas Press, and see Hell in the index, and you'll find those citations. The Voluspa was also included in Sharon Turner's The History of the Anglo-Saxons when it was published in the 1840s as an appendix to Book Two of that monumental work. Likewise, in Strabo and Diodorus Siculus, the Greek historians attributed the bravery of the Germanic warrior in battle to his belief that being killed in his life, his spirit would not die, but would have a better life beyond. These beliefs in life after death and in resurrection therefore existed among all the various branches of our white race. And to scoff at them, we basically scoff not only at our Bibles, But in all of the traditions of our most ancient ancestors, we can only pretend to know better. From the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, I will only read verses 1 and verses 22 and 23. For the ungodly said, reasoning with themselves, but not aright, our life is short and tedious, and in death, in the death of a man, there is no remedy. Neither was there any man known to have returned from the grave. Now, in response to the ungodly, it is written in verses 22 and 23. As to the mysteries of God, they knew them not. Neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Our ancestors believed such things from the dawn of time. If our creator God cannot transcend the physical world, then neither shall we, and there is no God at all. This is the debate of the past several millennia. And we pray that the ungodly do not prevail. If they do, then all the visible creation is left to corrupt and filthy reprobates. And indeed, there is no explanation for why things are as they are. Luke 24, verse 33. Christians have a better hope. And arising at that moment, they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, gathered together and those with them, saying that the prince really has arisen, and appeared to Simon. And they related the things on the road. Remember that these are the two men who were on the road to Emmaus, who just had the conversation with Christ. And they related the things on the road, and that he, meaning Christ, had become known to them as he broke the bread the men finding the eleven gathered together, it appears as if the other man who was traveling along with Cleopas on the road to Emmaus could not have been one of the twelve or one of the eleven, right? This also demonstrates that all of Christ's disciples were important to him, and not only the eleven who remained of those first twelve. The announcement that the prince really has arisen and appeared to Simon is portrayed here as if as it were coming from those who were gathered with the eleven, who seem to have heard it from them only recently and had in turn been announcing it to others. Now it most it, it must be noted here since the name Simon ostensibly refers to Simon Peter. That an appearance of Christ to Peter by this time is not reported in any of the Gospels. Matthew's Gospel makes no mention of any appearance by Christ to the apostles from the time where he appears to the women and instructs them to tell the apostles to go to Galilee until the time when the apostles depart from Jerusalem and go to Galilee, Matthew chapter 28, verses 10 and 16. The legitimate portion of Mark chapter 16, I'm only counting up to verse 8 inclusively, leaves the women departing from the tomb after having received those same instructions from an angel. John reports himself and Peter as having departed from the empty tomb early in the day. And then he describes at length the encounter which Mary had with Christ in the garden, which is apparently around that same time. But he describes no encounter between Peter and Christ. So the encounter with Peter mentioned here by Luke is not recorded anywhere in the other Gospels. But that does not mean that it did not happen. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, corroborates Luke's account here. We're not mentioning the encounters which Christ had with the women. Paul writes from verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I had also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas. Cephas is a word from the Hebrew word for stone and a name equivalent to Peter. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And here it is also quite clear that Paul use the term apostles to denote a group much larger than the initial 12, or really than the initial 11, since Judas is no longer present. Now, it must also be noted here that the spurious portion of Mark chapter 16 is in direct conflict with the testimony of Luke here. Where it says, and I will quote from the King James version of Mark 16, verses 12 and 13. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's these, that, these men from the road to Emmaus, right? And they went and told it unto the residue, the remaining apostles at Jerusalem. Neither believed they them. Now here in Luke we learned that the eleven would have no would have had no reason to disbelieve these men, since they themselves had already had similar reports, right from Peter himself, right. And there is no exclamation of disbelief, but only an exclamation of joyous affirmation. For this, and many other reasons, Mark chapter sixteen, from verse nine to its end in verse 20, verses which do not appear in any of the Greek manuscripts known to predate the 5th century, must be rejected. Which is why they're not found in the Christian New Testament. Luke 24, verse 36. Then upon their speaking these things, he stood in their midst. The codices, Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis. And the majority text upon which the King James Version is based all have the words. And upon speaking these things, Joshua himself stood in their midst. The text follows the 3rd century papyrus, P75. And the codices, Sinaticus, Vaticanus, and in this case, the Codex Beze. To continue the verse... And says to them, peace to you. But being troubled, now some manuscripts here have terrified and other manuscripts have afraid. But being troubled and becoming frightened, they imagine to be seeing a spirit. Now the Codex Bese here has a phantom, the word phantasma in Greek. Strong's number fifty three twenty six, rather than a spirit. The word pneuma in Greek, Strong's number forty one fifty one. That word phantasma. In the epic cycle, the epic cycle is is a it, it's a collection of ancient Greek poetry surrounding the story which was told of the fall of Troy. In a poem called The Little Iliad, where the ghost of Achilles appeared to Odysseus, the verb used to describe the event was phantazomahi, a verb related to phantasma, the noun. And here again, we also see another early example of a Greek belief in life after death, that the ghost of a departed man can appear to the living, something which was very often seen in Greek poetry, in ancient Greek poetry. And a belief right from the Hebrew Old Testament. The noun phantasma may also be a vision, a dream, a mere image, an unreality, where the word spirit is always Numa in the New Testament. Yet here we see that the earliest in the earliest times ghosts and spirits were equated. And the account of Christ's walking on the water, related by both Matthew and Mark the word phantasma appears in all manuscripts at Matthew 14:26 and at Mark 6:49 where the King James in those places renders the word as spirit but the equation is again manifest right verse 38 and he said to them Why are you troubled, and for what reason do disputes arise in your hearts? You see my hands and my feet, that I am he. You touch me and see that a spirit has not flesh and bones, just as you see me having. And saying this, he showed them the hands and feet. But upon their still being incredulous, from joy and wandering. He said to them, have you any food here? And they gave to him a piece of broiled fish, and taking it, he ate it before them." Now, the majority text upon which the King James Version is based inserts at the end of verse 42 and of a cone of honey. In other words, some of a cone of honey, right? None of the extant ancient manuscripts contain those words. Here we also see it explicitly mentioned that Christ ate fish, directly refuting the lies of many vegetarians. Furthermore, if we believe that he kept his own law, which are the Old Testament laws, then we must also believe that he ate the meat of lambs as the children of Israel were explicitly commanded to do on the Passover. He ate the food to further prove to them that he was real and not merely an apparition, something which they also obviously believed was possible. So yes, the apostles believed in ghosts and, and saw those ghosts as the souls of the deep. Of the, of the departed. They saw those ghosts as the souls of the dead. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words which I have spoken to you while yet being with you, that it is necessary to fulfill all the things written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their minds for which to understand the writings. For three years, or for at least some time before the crucifixion, he had been telling them that he had to die and be resurrected. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Again, what what things we perceive in this life are within the providence of God. And unless God guides a man, the man will remain in blindness. We must consider these things when relating those things which we see as truth to our brethren who are blinded with the things of this world. Repentance and recognition of God comes before a restoration of vision in every case where Christ healed the blind. He asked them, do you believe I am able to do this? When they said yes, they were admitting that he was God. Verse 46. And he said to them that thusly it is written that the Christ is to suffer and to be resurrected from among the dead in the third day, and for repentance, for the remission of errors, to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Christ commanded his disciples to take the gospel to all of the nations, not to all nations, as the King James Version, and others ignore the definite article when it is convenient for them to do so. What nations? What are the nations? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 12, are a messianic prophecy. And I quote, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the nation seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again. The second time, to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam or Persia and from Shinar or Babylon. These are all the places that the children of Israel were dispersed to in ancient times. It does not describe the places where they stayed. It describes the original places that they were dispersed to. And from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It does not ever say, that he will gather anyone but the outcasts of Israel and the dispersed of Judah, which are not and have never been the Jews. As we discussed in Luke chapter 20, chapters 20 and 21 here, and proves from the scripture, the dispersion of the Jews after 70 AD was the dispersions of the enemies of God according to the scripture, not the dispersion of the people of God. Jeremiah chapter 30 verses 10 and 11 help to prove as much that the gathering is only for the children of Israel and nobody else, that the redemption is only for the children of Israel and nobody else. I'll read from Jeremiah verse, chapter 30 verse 10. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh. Neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. That promise in Jeremiah 30 reappears later in Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 45. It's It's worded almost exactly the same way. Jeremiah, Yahweh through the prophet said the same thing twice in two different places. He meant it. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have scattered thee, speaking to the children of Israel. You don't want to be a non-Israelite in the day of his wrath. Yet I will not make a full end of thee. The only way you have a chance of surviving is to fit into that category, according to the scripture. Jeremiah 31, verses 10 to 11, also helped to prove as much that a regathering, that the nations which were to receive the gospel are only the children of Israel, where it says... Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him, as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. As it says, in the opening chapter of Luke, that his purpose was to save us from our enemies in fulfillment to the promises made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no covenant, there is no promises outside of this context. It's the context of the whole Bible. There is no universalism. There is no dispensationalism. They are the deceptive mechanizations of men. For this reason, the nations to which the gospel was brought were those dispersed nations of the ancient children of Israel. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, that the nations of the promise are the nations which sprung from the loins of Abraham where in part he had written, and I will quote from verse 13, words which are difficult for most people to understand, Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring, that he is to be the heir of the world, but through righteousness of faith. For if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. Now think about the context in which Paul wrote that, where the people professing to keep the law, were Edomite Jews. Only the Edomite Jews had the law at that time, and the remnant of Israel left behind with them, which was quite small. The long-dispersed Israelites were pagans. They didn't have the law at that time. They didn't have the law, which Paul refers to in the Old Testament. For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring. Not to that of the law only, meaning those true Israelites in Judea, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing, that's an important clause here, and calls things not existing as existing. The nations that Abraham was made a father of had not yet existed. That's why Paul says that. So, you can't say, oh, God gave up the Jews and went to these other Gentile nations that had always been around. That's not true. The nations to whom the promise was, the nations who were the heirs, the offspring, had not yet existed. That's why Paul says that. Yeah, I'll repeat myself a few times. They didn't yet exist because they were to come into being as his literal, physical seed, his literal, physical offspring. May it be known that in the time of Abraham, there were no Romans. There were no Dorian Greeks. There were no Daning Greeks. There were no Trojans. There were no Germans. There were no Englishmen. There were no Irishmen. Yeah, there were some wandering Japhethite tribes in in, in the north, and there were some settled Japhethite tribes in the Mediterranean basin. But the nations of later Europe, they didn't exist because they were the seed of Abraham, to whom Paul. and the other apostles, to some degree, had brought the gospel. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 4. Who, contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations. According to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. Right there, Paul defines the faith of Abraham from which he said the promise and the seed would come. Contrary to expectation, the man was a hundred years old, and expectation believed that he would have seed from his loins, for which he would become a father of many nations. According to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. That's the faith of Abraham. That's the faith through which the offspring, the children of the promise, are to come. The universalist dispensationalists are wrong. The promise does not say that many nations would become Abraham's offspring. It says that Abraham's offspring would become many nations. The promises are wholly genetic like it or not. By the time of Christ, the dispersed children of Israel had indeed become many nations, and they are the nations of the promise. If the children of Israel obtained the promise by keeping the law, then all of them had failed, and there are no heirs to the covenant. Those of the faith of Abraham of the nations that resulted in the promise to Abraham. Those who had been dispersed far and wide centuries before Christ, but who descended literally from the seed of Abraham. Those white nations of the Greco-Romanoid cumine, to whom the apostles brought the gospel. These things are evident throughout Paul's epistles. Verse 48. You are witnesses... these things, and behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but you sit in the city until when you are endowed with ability or power from the heights. This is, of course, a promise of the events later realized, not much later, actually about 50 days later, Pentecost, how long is that? How long is it until Pentecost? <laughs> About 50 days. This is a promise of the events later realized in Acts chapter 2 of the Holy Spirit descending upon the apostles and the ability given them to speak in various languages so that they could bring the gospel to the dispersed nations of Israel. Those languages, it is, estimate from the, it is evident from the testimony there, were indeed the languages of the Greco-Romanoi kumene. And we're told precisely what tongues they were. Verse 50. And he led them as far as to Bethany, or Bethania. And raising his hands, he blessed them. And it happened upon his blessing them, that he had separated from them and was carried up into the heaven, an event will see described again in Acts chapter one. Nicotus' Sinaticus, which is among the oldest and usually most reliable, and Beze want the phrase and was carried up into the heaven which is found in the 3rd century papyrus, P75, and in all of the other ancient manuscripts. Verse 52, And they, worshipping him, and the Codex Beze wants the phrase worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising Yahweh. In place of praising, the Codex Beze has commending. The codices Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and the majority text have both words, commending and praising. The Christogenian New Testament follows the 3rd century papyrus, P75, and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimus, Syri. The word Amen is added to the end of the text by the codices Alexandrinus and Vaticanus in the majority text. It's wanting in the other ancient manuscripts. Of course, there were many more and minor variations among the Gospel manuscripts than those mentioned here, and most all of them were quite trivial and therefore left unmentioned, or this series would last a year and a half and not half a year or better. I thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh. This is the end of my presentation of the Gospel of Luke. Next week's Next Friday's program, I will leave the topic to be announced. I've recently written two essays on Christian socialism posted currently on the front page of the Saxon Messenger. The first, entitled Christian Socialism, was the editorial for the November 2012 Saxon Messenger. The second, which I had just written on Monday, is the editorial for the December 2012 Saxon Messenger. I hope this month, after six months of being off schedule, to catch up on the publication of, of, of the Saxon Messenger. I would um recommend that my listeners read those essays on Christian socialism. I'm second, the second essay, I'm sorry, the second essay is entitled Anti-Christian Materialism, or Christian Socialism, Part 2. Now, I know that that word socialism is a dirty word. It's a dirty word because it's been stolen away by the Jews and used as a euphemism for Marxist collectivism. I would pray that those who listen to my program read the essays and look at them objectively, and you'll find... That real socialism, as it was first developed as a philosophy in, in 18th century France, 19th century France, was both nationalist and it was very Christian in its essence. Think outside of the box. Don't be stuck in the box of capitalism, the, the box that the Jews built, which contains only one dichotomy. Capitalism and communism, capitalism and communism. Both of those ideologies were developed by the Jews. And the Jew has us stuck in them. And most Christians don't have the ability to objectively think outside of them because when they hear words like socialism and communism and capitalism, Those words trigger emotional responses, which preclude the ability to think objectively. Put all those feelings aside and read those two essays, please, and look at them objectively. And my purpose is to illustrate that National Socialism was not Marxist. It was not communist. And it was very Christian in its essence. If we don't understand our political and economic philosophies correctly and objectively, and we don't understand terms outside of the, the, the way that the Jew has defined them, redefined them through his media, we will forever be enslaved by the Jew because the Jew has won the battle because we've allowed him to define the terms that we use. It's incredible. We have to take our language back from the damn Jew. Then maybe we could sit and discuss things honestly. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren against the Paul Bashers, Part 8. I love to bash the Paul Bashers. They're the biggest idiots in Christianity. They're worse than the Judeo-Christians because they should know better. And they're even bigger whores for the Jews. Good night.